Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Zandi, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and I got a slimmed down crew today. That's Mr. Dorees, Dr. Dorees. Good to see you. Good to see you, Mark. Yeah, it's just mano a mano again. Yeah. Listen, uh, Marissa, the uh, Dante, the whole team, everyone's gone. We're just us. And this is Saturday morning, which is really unusual. I've, I've been traveling all week, so uh, got back late yesterday and couldn't record the podcast until now. So thanks for doing this. Absolutely. Where were you? Uh, West Coast? Uh, yeah, we were in uh, Salt Lake for a day and then oh. uh, Southern California for a few days. So uh, the folks in Salt Lake uh, told me I picked a good day to come. It was only 100 degrees outside. So. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it was pretty brutal. <laughs> I don't. I really don't know how you manage through all that, but uh, you know, people do. Uh, Southern California was gorgeous. That was beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, the weather okay. was always nice there, but it was really you know, very nice. And you got back from Italy? I did. I was back earlier this week. And very hot there too. So another oh, really heat wave going. Oh yeah, they're in the hundreds as well. Really? Yeah. Wow. Uh, so, for Italy, does Italy? Uh, I, I mean, is this unprecedented heat or just just hot? Yeah. It's, it usually does. It gets hot in the uh, summer. That's that's natural. But yeah, um, this year really brutal. Really brutal. Um, oh boy, I wonder what that means yeah. for the uh, for the vineyards. That can't be good. Or I don't know. Well, maybe maybe I I have no idea. Do you know? I don't know. I think it yeah. might be. I think it might be. Um, Makes it High sweeter quality, but or something. Smaller, yeah, yeah, smaller production, lower production, but uh, higher quality, perhaps. But yeah, I think oh, it really okay. depends because they also had this. They had a lot of rain earlier this year as well. So, you know, the timing oh, of those weather events is right. Right. Well, good. Good to have you back. You had a good yeah. vacation. You were there for a couple of weeks, I think. At least I was. Two. It was nice. Yeah. Was yeah, it? you do look rusted. That's great. I'm glad <laughs> you're back. Um, well, uh, I thought for this podcast we kind of take stock of 2023 year to date, you know, we're kind of a little over halfway through and, um, you know, lots happened. Uh, I've already forgotten a lot of what's happened. It's pretty action packed. Thought we'd take stock of that and maybe uh, also think a little bit about the second half of the year uh, as well. Sound like a good game plan? Does that sound like? Absolutely. Okay. All right. Well, uh, I think kind of top of mind. First question is, um, uh, that I, I, you know, I'm, I've been getting is, uh, you know, what about the economy's performance so far this year has surprised you the most? Uh, you know, a lot of different things going on. What's been most surprising for, uh, for you? Yeah, I would say it's really the uh, the resilience of consumers mm-hmm. and businesses, right? You mentioned all the risks, all the things that happened this year. I think we already forgot. That there was a debt ceiling <laughs> drama for a few months, and we had the banking mini crisis, right? Um, high rates, and I think I underappreciated just how resilient consumers and consumer balance sheets really were. I knew they were strong; that's why I didn't expect to see a, a major drop off. But uh, consumers just have been continuing right through, right? They, their spending mm-hmm. just keeps going, even with high levels of inflation still. They're tapping into their savings, continuing to support the economy through their spending. Businesses also still looking ahead, right? Um, obviously, they face a number of challenges, but they've also continued with their investments and looking ahead to uh, to expand. So I think that's a key source of the strength of the economy so far 
if we hadn't had those types of uh, supports, I think the shocks we would have ex- we did experience would have uh, created um, more ripples in a different environment. Yeah, I mean the economy has been resilient. We're going to get the GDP for the second quarter. I think on this coming Thursday. Is that right? Or Wednesday, Thursday? I can't remember which yeah, day. I think, so. I think I think it's generally Thursday. In the uh, our tracking estimate, we we take all the monthly data as it comes in and translate that into what it means for GDP growth in the current quarter. I think we're at two point two percent real GDP growth in Q two. That's on top of two percent in the first quarter. So that means first half of the year, two percent ish. Yeah. Which you know that's the economy's potential rate of growth, you know, that rate of growth consistent with enough jobs to maintain stable unemployment. Unemployment has been rock solid in the mid threes. So consistent with that, that that's pretty good. And you're saying, you know, we were having this conversation at the end of last year, thinking about the first half of this year, you would not have thought 2% growth. No, no. Right. I thought it was positive still, but certainly weaker. Right. And of course, uh, the, Hand in hand with that is the job growth, also, yeah, more resilient. Uh, but you, you know, you 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 say, okay, consumers have hung in there. Uh, their uh, their their spending uh, has been more resilient. Why? I mean, what's what do you think is going on there? Why has it been more resilient? Yeah, I give a lot of credit to the um, the balance sheets, right? The excess savings that we point to, um, or we have pointed to on on the podcast. Just that's a, a that's a significant uh, so, a source of support that uh, you can tap into, or consumers have been willing to tap into, uh, to continue to support their their spending. On top of that, you can't you mentioned the job market. Wage growth has been strong, right? That certainly is another source of support, particularly for those households at the lower end, which may have already exhausted most of their savings. At least they have this this wage increase coming in that can help to offset some of the financial pressures as well. So again, I, I see I see that as really the the reason why consumers can have continued to be willing to to spend. Yeah. Now okay. I mean that sense feels a little uh unsatisfying to me, right? Because really? we, yeah, because we knew about the excess saving, right? We've been tracking the excess saving and the excess saving yeah. this for the listener is the extra saving that occurred during the pandemic, above which uh, uh, would would have happened if there had been no pandemic, and part of that was uh, lower income households getting government support. Although that probably is pretty much gone at this point. It, the other uh, uh, part of that is uh, all middle income, high income households sheltering in place and not being able to spend during the pandemic and they saved and have all this cash, you know, they're sitting in their checking accounts and they've been using it. But, you know, we, we knew that coming into this year that there was a lot of excess saving. We did, but I think there was, I believe there was a debate. At least I, I, I was debating whether that uh, saving was truly available for spending or if consumers were viewing that as wealth that they, or maybe they were just parking those, uh, that cash in an account for now, trying to see where they should, how they should deploy it whether they should buy stocks or bonds or you know, kind of wait and see, but not that they would actually be using that um, to c- continue to support spending in the absence of a crisis, right? If we were truly in recession, sure, that's when people will deplete their savings and do whatever they can to stay afloat. But this was 
depleting savings just to continue the level of spending that the trajectory that they were already on. Yeah, so it's I, funny. Uh, I'm not. I wasn't. I'm not surprised by the folks using cash in their checking account to maintain their spending. <laughs> that seems like oh, duh. They're going to do that. Right, especially the American consumer, right? I mean, what's the old adage? Never underestimate the hedonism of the American consumer. Yeah. That's been a pretty good forecast rule forever. Uh, what actually surprised me on the spending side was they didn't spend more. I mean, you know, they haven't been spending with abandon. It's not like they're out, you know, dropping their saving rate to a significant degree. Uh, they've been amazingly calibrating their spending, right? So if you look at Real consumer spending—that—that's the the you know the kind of the whole shooting match. That's the, everything that people spend their money on, from vehicles and other goods to travel and other uh, services. It's two percent on the nose, two percent on the nose, and it's been like that for well over a year, maybe a year and a half now. I mean, just you know, some months a little higher growth, some months a little lower, but about two percent. I find that I—that's what I find so surprising that it's been so you know carefully calibrated that you know consumers have been using drawing down their excess saving over the past year just to supplement their purchasing power their real incomes have been under pressure because of the high inflation but they've been able to draw down that savings to supplement their purchasing power just enough to maintain the spending and hit that number right on the nose the two percent real growth and of course consumers are the you know the bulk of gdp Thus, you get two percent GDP. You know that kind of thing. No. Yeah, yeah. No, that, I'd accept that. But that, yeah. there's certainly a lot of shocks still out there, right? So, why didn't consumers spend even more? I think there's still a lot of uncertainty, right? So, right. That would calibrate. That would cause them to calibrate a bit more. Yeah. I tell I you, will tell you that the consumers are definitely spending in in Europe. Right. America Italy was consumers. full of Americans. Uh, full of America, oh, more than right? I've seen in the past. So clearly, uh-huh. there's some segment of Americans out there that's well, also the strong dollar. Spending. The strong dollar's got to help too, right? I mean, sort of strong. I guess the dollar euro is what one thirteen, one fourteen, something like that, which is pretty, yeah. pretty strong dollar. Uh, it's weaker. It's weaker. It's weaker than it was, but yeah. you know, in the yeah. grand scheme of things, that's a pretty strong dollar. I think. Yeah. No. Yeah. 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 But, okay. Um, I'll tell you what the thing that surprised me, and it's not unrelated to the consumer, but a little kind of different perspective is is jobs. I've been surprised by how resilient the job market has been and how consistently businesses have been able to you know generate you know uh, uh, new jobs that uh, you know I think average monthly job growth in twenty. 23 year to date is got to be over 300,000 around 300,000. I think it's right month. there. Yeah. It's right there, which is pretty incredible. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Pretty, I mean, because, you know, kind of the rule of thumb we've had is, uh, you, you know, underlying labor force growth, you know, abstracting from the ups and downs and all arounds uh, is probably not more than 100K per month. Right. So, you know, an economy can't sustain them up above 100K for, you know, lengthy periods of time. Can in the current, it, in 2023, because we had a lot more labor supply too, a lot more uh, working age population and labor force participation picked up. So that has been helpful. But, you know, longer run, you know, we can't support job growth that's over 100K. And here we are, you know, well into this jobs recovery and we're still creating 300K. And, you know, it goes to, it, it, interestingly, 
it it goes to uh, uh, just pretty low layoffs. I mean, layoffs have picked up, you know, this year compared to last, particularly in the tech sector, maybe a little bit in single family housing or mortgage originations and bit manufacturing. But, you know, uh, outside of that, layoffs remain incredibly low. And uh, the dynamics are, are, you know, it's, it's less clear to me what's driving that. In the case of the consumer, they got cash in the bank. So they, you know, that feels like that's a pretty easy explanation for why they're able to spend. The explanation for why businesses aren't laying off workers and why job growth is so strong, that's a little bit more difficult, don't you think, to explain? Well, I think the labor force participation was a bit of a surprise, right? Not not so much the fact that we are creating all these jobs, but that there's- You're surprised workers, by a lot of stuff. I wasn't surprised by that. that, that, I, that no, come on. That we keep finding people that are willing to come back in the labor market, that no, you well, got to be surprised. Not, not women's really. labor force participation at an all-time high. No, that no. keeps growing. That we're going to continue to find people. Yeah, our labor force. Yeah, go, go look at our forecast that we did before the pandemic of what the labor force participation rate would be today. It's exactly where the labor participation rate is today. Nothing, no surprise. No, at least, at least, you know, no. So I would say that hasn't been surprising. But why? Why do you think businesses aren't? Well, first of all, do you agree with the characterization that job growth has been strong largely because layoffs have remained low? I mean, you know, hiring is strong, although that feels like that's more normalized more recently. So it feels like it's more on the layoff side that, you know, uh, the reason why we can be able to continue continue to generate such strong job growth. Is that yeah, fair yeah, characterization? That sounds, that sounds right. Yeah. Okay. And so what's going on? I mean, the, 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 the kind of the pat, you know, explanation is uh, labor hoarding. Right, businesses yeah. um, uh, realize that their number one problem is going to be uh, through thick and thin. You know, through whatever it is that we're experiencing now. On the other side of it, they're still going to be left with a tight labor market. Just dem- demographics. You know, the aging out of the boomer generation, me, uh, the uh, uh, slower immigra- uh, foreign immigration into the country, which is key to labor force. So they know that they're going to have a perennial problem filling positions and retaining workers and therefore they're just not willing to do that right now. What do you, is that the answer? You know, I'm a little dissatisfied by that. Right. Yeah. I can see it to some extent. Sure. If I know that I'm going to, this uh, slowdown is going to be temporary. Right. Uh, you know, yeah, I'm willing to uh, hang on to some folks that otherwise I might not uh, otherwise have, because I know what the other side of this is going to have, but there's a limit to that. I can't, a business can't afford just to, you know, hold a reserve army of workers out there doing nothing, um, and ho- hoping that the demand comes back later. So that just doesn't sound right to me as that as that being the the major reason. I think it's it, I think there is true growth. I think the consumers do remain strong, and they're still seeing a lot of demand for their their services and the products. And that's why they continue to hang on but, to their workers, right? But productivity growth has weakened, right? I mean, consistent with the idea that there's labor hoarding, that you know, demand, it, it's still growing, but it's growing more slowly than the growth in labor input, the job growth. And so productivity growth, I mean, you saw this big pop in productivity growth coming out of the pandemic, you know, like you typically do coming out of recession. And But since, since then, it's been flatlined, you know, it hasn't gone anywhere. So that is consistent yeah. with the idea that businesses are saying, okay, I'm willing to live with uh, uh, less productivity growth, which means 
weaker profit margins, which means lower profitability, at least for a while. That's consistent with that. Yeah, I I, I still see a, a productivity as uh, undergoing through a, a transformation here, though. Mm-hmm. I think we're still dealing with the remote work, hybrid work, optimizing around that. So in the interim, in the short term, you can have productivity growth being low. You're investing, if you will, uh, for a future where productivity growth will will pick up. And AI might be the next uh, factor example uh, for that, where in the short term, you actually may see productivity go down as you're trying to figure out how to use these new tools and technologies. You're actually, you know, you're running the old process in parallel with the new process that's actually reducing your productivity. But then longer term things will turn around. And I, I still see firms struggling with the whole remote work, hybrid work environment. So I see that as being another structural factor on top that may explain some of that weaker productivity growth. So, you know, I don't see that as hoarding though. I, th- I yeah. see that as, yeah. uh, as right. transformational, right? Right. Yeah. And you, you said something that kind of resonates with me that, that hadn't dawned on me until recently. If I'm a business person and you know I hear the words recession, but then I hear in the same breath, oh, it's going to be a short, mild recession. You know, maybe a few months, maybe six months, maybe down a little bit. I go, oh, okay. And and, and I and I've been now through many years of of uh, fighting to find people to, to work for me. You know, because this is this goes back to way before the pandemic, right? This this labor shortage, number businesses number one problem being labor is not new. It's right been you know around for a while almost a decade now well not quite a decade but you know kind of in that ballpark and you're saying oh okay if it's going to be short and mild i, I i'm not going to lay on any, anybody off you know may, maybe on the margin on the you know on the fringes uh, you know I'll use this as an opportunity to you know maybe restructure a little bit but i'm not going to lay off in a, in a big way yeah sound right that's what you're yeah, saying i just won't hire saying. right yeah. i'm gonna i'm gonna reduce my hiring at that point yeah yeah Right. I reduce hiring, but not, not layoff workers. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Uh, okay. Um, yeah, I think the, oh, here's the other thing though, I point out with regard to the surprise, particularly around the job market is maybe we'll find out that it, there wasn't as many jobs created and Let's, it wasn't yeah. the, the surprise there were really, it's just, we're surprised because it never happened. It's wrong. It's wrong. <laughs> right. Yeah. And this goes to the revisions, right? Because the job market data that we look at, the monthly data, the payroll survey data, the data based on our survey businesses, that that's a that's a survey, you know. So, you know, I don't know how it's what, 250,000 establishments, something like that, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's it's big, but it's still a survey. You get this data gets so-called benchmarked to actual employment estimates for, based on unemployment insurance records once a year by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And sometimes those revisions are big uh, and we could see, you know, pretty, and I wouldn't be surprised at all if we saw some substantive downward revision in uh, the estimated job growth that we've seen so far this year. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, 300,000 a month is just an incredible pace, even in any environment, right? (laughs) Right. uh, Yeah. That's the one thing I've learned over 35 years as a professional economist. When something doesn't quite add up, it, it really doesn't. It doesn't add up. It doesn't add up, and the, and the data ultimately is revised. You yeah. know, even the GDP number. I bet you exactly the G- GDP. Certainly, last year when you saw those two quarters of negative numbers in the first half of 2022, which that would, if we had done this podcast a year ago, that would have been the surprise. You know, what yep. 
where did those negative numbers come from? I, I'm, I, I'm still betting that once all those revisions on GDP come in, and they're they're a lot more coming, that gets revised away. And you know, not, it wasn't strong. There, I'm not saying you had strong growth, but I'm, I'm not. I, I bet you we didn't experience two quarters of negative GDP. Just yeah. my intuition. And right now, GDI, gross domestic income, is is pointing to weakness, right? That's pointing to weakness. So yeah, it could right. be that you know the strength you're seeing right now may not be quite as strong. Yeah, as right, right. Because GDI, G- gross domestic income, was stronger in the first half yeah. of 2022. The flip of what's happening right now. Right. So yeah, you take the average of those two things. That's probably reality. Right. It's basically saying slow growth, one percent kind of growth, yeah. GDP growth, which is yeah. more consistent with kind of what we're observing out there. So. And our original forecast. In our, in our original <laughs> forecast. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. How, uh, in terms of surprises, uh, let me throw one more out. I got a couple other yeah. surprises. Uh, do you have more surprises as well? I got plenty of surprises. Oh, you got plenty of, plenty of surprises. Let me, throw, let me throw one out that I know is your favorite, house prices. Oh, that's where I was going to go. Oh, is that where you're going to go? Okay, go, yeah. go there. Um, so say? I guess... I, I guess I wasn't terribly surprised by the slowdown, right? We had been calling for a slowdown in prices throughout last year. We actually got some heat, right? We were kind of on the low end of consensus at, at the time. So when house prices actually did slow down, I actually even turned negative on a year over year. I wasn't terribly surprised by that. But more recently, you know, we see house prices holding up much better. And I think the uh, where it perhaps missed was just how strong the lock-in effect is. And, the fact that uh, you have very limited inventory of homes for sale, people hanging onto their homes because they've locked in these very low uh, mortgage rates. And that has overwhelmed the aff- affordability issues with given the higher interest rate, you would have thought demand would pull back and has, but that's that lack of supply that has really kept prices from falling much at all. In fact, they're starting to rise again in, in many markets. Yeah. So the idea is that uh most homeowners with mortgages uh oh here here I'm gonna play a little statistics game with you right right now all okay right. All I want right. to see how one good on you one. really are really good no, there's mono, no Marissa mono, mono. Here. yeah here you go how many uh uh single family homeowners are out there do you think roughly speaking oh roughly speaking because I don't know the exact answer either because I didn't think I was going to ask you this question before I asked it I think through, uh, it's been a while. So yeah. what do we have? Well, you know, the home ownership rate is. We know about 120, 130 million households, households. right? Home ownership yeah. rate is about two thirds. It's on the nose actually. Yeah. 66%. Yeah. Well, that another data point you should take with a grain of salt. Oh, true. True. <laughs> Very true. But yeah, it's a two thirds yeah. on the nose. So. Yeah. Do the arithmetic. So what is that? 75, 80 million people. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Okay. And how many of them have mortgages? How many people have more? Oh, about half. Uh, it, it's, oh, I thought it was a little more than, uh, well, yeah, yeah, it's a little more. Oh. About almost 50 million have mortgages. Okay. Yeah. It, uh, you, you don't believe me. You, you're, you're doubtful. No, no. That, that, I see I it on old, your face. I have an old number, right? So I, yeah, yeah. I haven't looked we, at it recently. We know exactly because we get the data uh, yeah. from Equifax, all the credit files in the country every month. So we know exactly. So we can go take a look. I think it's like 49.3 million. I'm just, maybe, maybe we'll, we'll look that up before. Are you subtracting out the second mortgages there? Uh, that's just first, first mortgage, first mortgage. Well, but it's a first mortgage, but you could have 
Well, as defined by the bureau's right? first mortgage, right? I mean, it, yeah, it's I first mortgage on the property, but the you're, owner might. Oh, you're you're, you're 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 just trying to squirrel out of you. You didn't know the answer. You, <laughs> I, oh, I think wow, it's because uh, second mortgage. It's yeah, closer. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't. Oh, okay, uh, maybe you're right. Sandy overcounting right. going. Yeah, on. maybe you're maybe you're right. <laughs> uh, anyway, where was I going with that? Oh, oh, this is it. So you got you know say let's just round to fifty million. 50 right. million people, the average coupon, the inter, the average interest rate on their mortgage, because of all the refinancing that's been done over the years and the fact that mortgage rates got so low. I mean, if you go back before the Fed started raising rates in, in 2021, I think we got down to what? Two and a half, two and three quarter percent on a 30 year yeah. fixed. You know, I mean, something like outrageous number. Ridiculous. Yeah. By the way, have you noticed when you asked People about their mortgage rate. Everybody's got that two and a half percent mortgage. Yeah, oh yeah, I got two point five three. You know, everyone's everyone's a genius. <laughs> got a more, it's like so shocking to me. Like everyone's got that lower. Well, maybe they do because the average coupon is three and a half percent, right? Roughly three yeah. and a half percent. So okay, current mortgage rates are seven, you know, yeah. roughly. <clears throat> so are you really going to sell your home? You know, you extinguish that mortgage at three and a half, go get another home, get another mortgage at seven. That, the economics of that are pretty tough, right? Yeah, that's right. And and so that's what you mean by interest rate lock. People are locked exactly. into their home, even if they hate their home, they they love they their love mortgage. The they're yeah. not gonna. They're not gonna. At least not, not unless they're. You know, life happens, and it will. You know, that may be. We still have house price declines occurring in our forecast because. Over time, over the next yeah. couple, I don't know, two, two and a half years, because uh, divorce, death, children, job change, people got to move. And, that, you know, once they have uh, decide they have to, they've been putting off those things, you know, they've been those things happen and they've been putting off moves because they don't want to move. But at some point they're going to have to move. And when they uh, go out to sell, uh, you know, uh, if, the, the, if at the current house price, which is so elevated, and at the current mortgage rate, things are just not affordable, they're going to have to cu start cutting prices. So we expect prices to still come in. Uh, although our peak to trough decline in house prices now is not as uh, significant as it was before, right? That's right. Yeah. At the, at, at the worst of, uh, at the height of our uh, pessimism around house prices, what did we have peak to trough decline in prices? Do you recall? That was close to 10%. Close to 10. Yeah. That's the entire market. Yeah. Yeah. The Fannie Freddie market, the FHA market, the the uh, the the bank, the the market that's uh, non-government. Yeah. yeah, yeah, right. Okay. Um, so uh, that the, so that was a surprise. How's the kind of the uh, and, and that may go back to consumers too, to some degree, right? The yeah. fact that housing values have held up means that people's housing wealth is also held up, and another reason for them to be a little bit more confident about going out and spending. By the way. Going back to your point about labor force uh, participation, the one place where I have been surprised about labor force participation is the fact that uh, people who have retired have not come back into the workforce to the same degree as they have historically in the post-pandemic period, right? So people, people we're getting a lot of retirements because the boomers are retiring. And typically, historically, when people retire, uh, you know, they many of them come back in to to look uh, to get work, either perhaps because of a lifestyle choice. They just say, I, you know, I just don't like retirement. I want some kind of work, and or financial reasons. They, oh, I'm not as prepared financially as I thought. I need to work a little bit longer. I need some income. 
it, but that's not happening this go around. It may be because people are wealthy, right? I mean, house prices are hanging in there. Stock prices are almost back to their you know previous record high. So they're saying, well, I, you know, I'm fine. I don't really need to to come back in. Yeah, yeah. So, Although I, I think though, it's, so you're right. They're not. They haven't come back to the extent that they were at prior to the pandemic. Kind of between the great financial crisis and the the um, and the pandemic, the uh, labor force participation rate of the folks over 65 was pretty high. But if you go back a little bit further, I I believe it was lower. I think we're getting back to that historical norm. If you go back into the 90s, uh, I don't think that's a fair comparison, though, because yeah, because it's you got to look at the distribution of ages of people in retirement. You've got a, a big chunk of folks that have newly retired. That's the boomers. You go back in the nineties, you know, the the average age of a person in retirement, that's that was a lot old. They were a lot older back then, right? Because you've got this wave of retirements occurring. So I'm not I'm not sure. So you, you want to look saying? at the 65 to 70. Exactly. Yeah, yeah that's okay, what I want to look at. Yeah, yeah. We'll yeah. Take a look. I'll take oh, a look. Oh, you've got the data. Oh, damn. I'll find it I somewhere. Could be wrong. <laughs> I could be wrong. No, I think I think that's uh, you might uh, be right. Might be yeah. Right. Okay. So okay. So are we going to come back in though, or is this permanent? You think? Uh, the longer it goes on, the more I'm thinking this is going to this going to stick. You know, and I do think it goes back to asset prices. I think it does go back to stock prices in particular. And it goes to um, housing values and, and cat the cash that people have that they did save. There's still a lot of excess cash for middle, high middle, and and high income households, and. You know the other interesting thing about boomers is they have invested more of their wealth in stocks than previous generations, and unlike previous generations, they you know as they've aged, they've not left the stock market. They've continued to uh, invest in the stock market, which is you know kind of counter to a lot of theory, personal yeah. financial advice. Right, you're supposed to take less risk, but people don't want to do that. They're very comfortable with the equity market. It's got a lot easier. It's gotten a lot easier to invest in the equity market. You got all these trading platforms and everything else. So, you know, it's just a lot easier. And so I, now that stock prices are, are so high, elevated, that, you know, the, I think there's a lot more wealthier boomers out there than has been the case, you know, in previous generations. And that, that's less likely they're coming back in. Yeah. Hey, uh, so, okay, the surprises are. Uh, the resilience of the economy. You mentioned consumers. I don't think that was a surprise, but you know, you you know, you get surprised about lots of things. That didn't surprise <laughs> me. But the, the the resilience of the labor market that surprises me. You know, if it's real, you know, if it ends up being real. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the and then house prices. Anything else? This kind of that happened here recently, first half of twenty twenty three. That's been a surprise to you. Well, I think the if I'm honest, the banking. Mini crisis, yeah. Surprise, right? Could have expected that, that it happened. I mean, that, yeah, happened. that it happened, and it happened so quickly, and to fairly large institutions. We're not just talking about a few small banks. I mean, Silicon Valley was a huge bank, right? So, so yeah, right. that was that was a bit of a surprise, certainly. Yeah. The, oh, that came out of note for me. That was my most disappointing miss. Right. Uh, you know, of all the things that I, you know, my, I say my biggest forecast error in the following sense that I actually talked about the bank before the crisis. I talked about the banking system as a, as a, a uh, 
a basis of strength in the economy. One of the reasons why I didn't think we'd have a recession because the banking system was on such fundamentally strong ground. So I got that wrong. And, you know, it's a good lesson you know, uh, for me that I learn every 10 years. And that is look at the distribution. What I mean by that is if you go look at the averages or the medians of uh, measures that are reflective of the health of the system, the banking system, financial system, you can look at them, you go, the system's in great shape, right? Yeah. I mean, the level of capital is extraordinarily high, it risen meaningfully since in the wake of the financial crisis and all the regulatory changes, Dodd-Frank and everything else. Uh, you know, liquidity is much, much better than it was historically. Again, going back to those changes, underwriting has been really actually very good, you know, since the financial crisis. Banks have been very cautious in their underwriting, the lending standards that they, you know, impose uh, to extend out credit. So I, you know, I looked at those numbers and I go, oh, oh, and even the profitability of the banking system, right? I mean, you know, one of the things that I find so amazing is despite the higher levels of capitalization and despite the more restrictive regulatory environment and despite the liquidity, uh, 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 the demands for higher levels of liquidity, the return on assets, the return on equity of the banking system is not much lower than it was prior to the financial crisis. And of course, in the part of the financial crisis, that was a the world had lost their minds and the banks had extended out way too much credit. Underwriting was way too weak and that juiced up the return on equity and assets. So, you know, accounting for that, the system had returned, you know, completely back to the profitability that prevailed prior to that. Uh, by the way, that brings up another point about now the system is being required to hold even more capital in the wake of SBB and banking crisis. We can come back to that if you'd like, but, uh, but, uh, the surprise, the thing that I, I missed, and in hindsight, it's always like, you idiot, how could you have missed this? Is the distribution, right? If you look at, you know, the distribution across all the banks, you know, if you just had simply done a scatter plot of all the banks on the X axis, you know, uh, share of deposits that are to uninsured depositors on the other axis, the share of unrealized. Uh, realized losses on securities portfolios because of the, the increase in interest rates, they're way out on the, uh, you know, standing all by itself, you know, obviously screaming, I got a problem was SVB, you know, SVB. Now I would have uh, actually, in my, in all fairness to me, <laughs> to me, <laughs> that's what it's know, all about. It's all, it's all about that. You know, SVB was a $200 billion bank. Like, hand me a break, you know, if that thing goes belly up, would you have really thought that it would trigger the, the deposit run that it occurred across the banking system? Probably not, right? Yeah. Probably not, even, even if you'd seen that. And that, of course, I missed that. But that's a cautionary tale. We got to look at the distribution, you know, uh, particularly when it comes to things like the financial system. Can't just look at the averages. But that that's what... That's you know my biggest forecast you know, mistake, you know, I think. In, uh, but But having said that, I'll say one more thing because I'm saying a lot. The fallout, the economic fallout from the banking crisis has also been a lot less than I would have thought. No? Yeah, yeah. yeah. At least right? so far. At least so far. Right. Well, I mean, here we are. We're like, what? April, May, June. We're four months away, you know, since the crisis. So what are you, what are you thinking? You well, know, if, 
the the tightening of the standards, lending standards, right? Maybe that hasn't hasn't filtered really through. filtered through because of the balance sheets we talked about. If consumers still have cash and businesses have cash, they haven't really needed to borrow to a large degree as loans come due, as those uh, resources get depleted. That may be the time when you actually feel the the pressure. Yeah, but on the other hand, you look at the because uh, we get weekly data on loans outstanding by by loan type. You know, mm. cons- uh, credit cards and uh, construction land development loans and multifamily mortgage loans and s- commercial industrial loans, and that doesn't seem to show any meaningful weakening. Maybe a little bit on the margin, but I don't see it. You know, in the data, at least so yeah, not but- so far. But not yet, because the it rates just takes are time. You see late, rates are just like the mortgage market, right? The rates are locked in for a period of time. Yeah, when you when the businesses actually need to refinance. Or oh, I see. More capital. Saying. Yeah, later this year, or next year. I see. That could be when you see real the problem event. happens. Yeah, like when that multifamily uh, property owner, his mortgage comes due. due. Or her, exactly. her mortgage comes due, and she goes to the banker and says, "Hey, I need to." refinance this mortgage, roll this mortgage over. And the banker says, oh yeah, I'll be happy to sure. do that. But you know, the interest rate is 400 basis points higher. The LTV is, you know, much, much, uh, much lower. You know, that's what you're saying. That's right. That's when it could, yeah. The, the right. real Im- impact could, uh, could be seen. Okay. All right. Okay. So I gave you my biggest forecast regret, you know, that I, Completely. And when I say miss the banking crisis, I remember giving a speech at a Moody's conference. I think it was the day, maybe it was two days SBB before SBB failed. I, I will say we had this risk matrix, you know, which shows, uh, encapsulates all the risks we think uh, that yeah. exist to the economy. There, It was there. It was yep. in the risk matrix. It's just, I, I didn't even call it out. I felt so dumb not doing that, but uh, I missed that one. But so, okay, that's me. I did my forecast me a cold, but what about you? What's your biggest? Oh, I thought I gave it the, the existing, home, existing home sales and the- uh, That's price, your worst? Home price resilience for the uh, first half of this year. We're just talking this year, right? So I think you've got many more than that, my friend. What no? What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> really? Okay. All right. That's, that's, that's it. That's what you're going to give me, the, the house price one. All right. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. All right, let me ask you. Let me ask the flip of that. What are you most proud of? You know, what forecast are you most proud of? Oh, also house price forecast before that, right? <laughs> the fact that the house prices were coming in, right? Last year there was a lot of uh, pushback that you know, no way the prices could could come down from twenty percent year over year growth to anything close to zero. So. Oh really? That's one I'd be oh, more, oh, you, more proud of. Uh, hold on, I don't understand. So you're saying people forecasters out there weren't forecasting house price declines at all? No, no? very no, very modest. Oh, is that right? Very right. few people were forecasting house price. Last declines? year we were getting quite a bit of heat that we were actually we were? calling oh. for. Boy, that seems like that was so to... obvious that was going to happen. But no, okay, all right, interesting. Yeah, because why? Because prices, because the prices, I think in part because of the momentum, prices had been going up for. Right. Around 2020, 21, 22. Um, how could they go from 20% year over year growth to? Oh, I zero, see. Right. Oh, I missed all that. So people were banging on your door saying, hey, What are you yeah, doing? That we were being oh, too, uh, I didn't too, realize. too pessimistic. So, oh, okay. All right. Okay. Very good. Okay. So let me ask you this. Um, a lot of the, this now we're kind of 
forward looking here. Yeah. We've been kind of retrospective now, a little bit more forward looking. Uh, of all the things that people are hand wringing about, and you know, I've been out talking to clients. I, as I said, I just got back from a long West Coast trip, uh, listening to folks. Um, and and you, I know you do. You, you know, you talk to clients all the time. Where, what do you think is the most? What are they most concerned about that they just it's just misplaced? They're overly worried about you know what's going on. That they're not at oh, risk. So. Long list. I probably at the yeah. top. I would put um, CRE, uh, commercial real estate. You'd say they're they're o- overly concerned about commercial real estate as a threat to the economy. Exactly. Oh, okay. I think I think that's I think it's changing, right? Okay. I think people are coming around to terms that this. Yeah, there are issues with the commercial real estate market, but it's going to play out over time. It's still a relatively small market, unlikely to hit the economy more broadly, but uh, certainly for a while there, there were a lot of concerns that this was it. This is going to be the the straw that breaks the the economy's back. So I think those fears would have been a little bit too, too much. Overdone. Right? Not, not overdone, right? Not that we shouldn't be worried that certainly yeah. there's an impact, but- so, so flesh that out. So why shouldn't people be worried about CRE, commercial real estate? Well, uh, in terms of the impact on the banking sector, I think that's where people think the risks are really heightened. Just kind of an extension of the banking risks that we talked about earlier. Banks do have exposure to uh, commercial real estate loans. If the values of those loans go down, then there could be uh, problems in terms of the, uh, the solvency of their balance sheets. Banks certainly do have some exposure, but it's not as large, perhaps, as um, a number of analysts uh, suggest. The underwriting on CRE loans by banks has actually been fairly conservative after the Great Recession. So, uh, you know, it could be a, a loan to value ratio of 50%, right? So there's quite a bit of buffer, I would say, in terms of the, the depreciation in those uh, CRE assets that can go on without actually causing massive losses uh, for a bank. So that would be the the first thing I, I, I would point to. And then secondly, I, I do see this as playing out over time, right? This isn't, so far, I haven't seen the trigger that would cause all CRE prices uh, to collapse suddenly, uh, unlike what happened with the uh, residential mortgage market during the Great Recession. These are, you know, the leases are staggered out over time. The mortgages also come due at different points in time. So I, I think it'll be a rolling issue, if you will, but not that uh, critical Minsky moment kind of sudden crash uh, that goes on. So a long, slow bleed rather than a, a direct impact on the economy. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Uh, uh, you know, I uh, just to put a finer point on it, give, mm-hmm. give a couple of numbers. I mean, uh, the uh, total amount of CRE, commercial real estate mortgage debt that's coming due. This year, 2024 and 2025 is about 1.2 trillion of that dollars, you know, mm-hmm. outstanding that's coming due. Of that, a uh, 400 billion is uh, owed to the banking system. The rest of it is, you know, REITs and commercial right. mortgage-backed securities, sovereign wealth funds, all kinds of, you know, insurance companies, you know, a bunch of stuff. It's, it's widely dispersed around institutions in the global financial system. And um, of that, a hundred billion uh, is uh, mortgages backing office properties, and and that's really where the problem is, right? The, right. It's really and it's really very specific. It's office properties sitting in 
or downtown areas of big urban centers, you know, where we live, Philly, I think occupancy here is, well, I don't know what, 60, 70% probably and not, not rising. People aren't going back in. If that. If that, yeah. You can look at the castle data. I can't quite yeah. remember, you know, Boston, New York, uh, DC, Chicago, Seattle, Bay Area is, you know, the poster child for all of the mess. Southern California, where I was, there were some high-profile defaults, you know, very recently. Uh, that's where the problem is. So, hundred billion and people say a hundred billion. Uh, that that sounds like a lot. No, eh, not no. I mean, if you look, I think total. Uh, the the to- I'm making this number up, but the you know total assets sitting in the banking system, I think it's twenty trillion, something like that. I mean, some outrageous. You know, it's you know, uh, you know, this hundred billion is nothing. You know, so now, now having said that, the the uh, uh, let me try this out on you the kind of the risk scenario because you just kind of laid out the base case, you know, optimism, mm-hmm. and you got to think about you know what could go wrong. Uh, you know, it does going back to the distribution. You know, looking yep. at you know institutions, I think the typical bank you know has maybe ten to fifteen percent of their assets in CRE total assets. You know, loans, securities, the whole shooting thing, match. But there are a uh, you know fair number of small banks that have a much higher share, you know, 25, 30, 35 percent. And as a share of their capital base, you know, their equity, they're like, you know, tier one uh, capital, uh, it could be close to 100 percent, could be over 100 yeah. percent. Like that. So, you know, you have one or two uh, uh, properties that, you know, uh, go belly up, default on the mortgage. And it's and it's owed to a smaller institution. Those institutions could get into trouble. Now you're saying, okay, why should I be worried about that? They're too small. They're not too big to fail. They're not systemically important. But I would point out, uh, given our experience back in March, I'm not sure you know what systemically important means anymore, because because if people are nervous and start pulling their money out, even if a you know smaller bank fails, then everyone's too big to fail, right? So you could get into a, yeah. and right now people are on edge, obviously, you know, depositors are on edge. Uh, you know, my, I think I told the story about my 93 year old uh, uh, mother-in-law who's got some cash sitting in the bank and, you know, well below the deposit insurance limit asking me, you know, whether she should take her money out. And I saying, no, don't worry. And then she's asking me what I do for my, you know, for a living just to make sure you know, I, I'm credible, you know, that kind of thing. So, you know, if she's nervous and uh, she's watching CNN, then, uh, you know, uh, uh, every news outlet was, you know, saying the same thing that people are very nervous and you could get a deposit run. Is is that, does that sound like the most likely risk scenario? If things go off the rails, that's why it would go off the rails. Yeah. Yeah. Not that the, not that JP Morgan or a large institution gets into trouble, but but yeah, even a small one, because we are in kind of a fragile uh, psychological state here that it wouldn't, it may not take much to cause yeah. more bank runs. Right. Oh, and just one other reason why I'm not that nervous about it is, um, uh, you know, the big banks have uh, had to stress their uh, portfolios or commercial real estate portfolios under the stress testing scenarios, the so-called CCAR stress scenario. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, because I know you, know you know this data really well, the peak to trough decline assumed in last year's stress test was 40% on, on CRE. 
That's right. 40% peak to trough. I mean, so that would mean it had to be almost Armageddon, you know, uh, for prices, you know, because that, you know, office price prices would probably have to go down by 75, 80%, something like that. That's right. Uh, yeah. Cause the 40% was across the entire, the entire CRE multifamily portfolio. industrial you know, yeah. properties that actually are retail hotels, well. the whole shoot and match. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah. That, 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 uh, that feels like that. And you're, and you're right. Also, I think talking to people, they're getting a little, they're getting less uh, exorcised by that risk because as they work through the numbers, like we just did, they're becoming, they're nervous, but they're less nervous than they were. Yeah. So what are you hearing? What are you well, uh, I to answer that question, you know, what out there uh, is bothering people that might be overdone? I think it's student loans. Uh, you know, the student loan debt moratorium, because I I've been getting this question a lot too. You know, comes to an end payment moratorium that was put in place during the pandemic that that ends here, uh, and I think the first uh, payment due of student loan borrowers is October. Um, mm-hmm. If you do the kind of calculation uh, by our calculation using Department of Education data, 22 million student loan borrowers will have to start paying. Uh, their average monthly payment is say $275, $300 a month. You do the arithmetic. That means if all those student loan borrowers started to pay and didn't have other res- uh, financial resources uh, uh, then and had to cut back on other spending or stop paying on other debt to make that debt payment to uh, student from their student loan, it's 70, maybe 75 billion uh, per annum. So that, you know, 75 billion is, you know, a quarter percentage point of GDP. That kind of gives you a sense of magnitude. Yep. So if, if they all stopped in October, November, December, the fourth quarter, and you, so you take quarter percentage point annualized on a quarterly basis, that's 1% of GDP. You know, maybe you get a you know all, you know given all the things that we know that are going on, maybe you get a negative GDP number in Q4, but that's a vast overstatement of what's going to happen because it, it you know a lot of student loan borrowers have other financial resources. Uh, and here's the other thing: I, I don't know, I, I'm not sure how many of those 22 million borrowers are actually going to stop start paying on their debt because. As you as as uh, we learned, President Biden through executive order told uh, servicers that they cannot report delinquent student loan borrowers to the bureaus. So there's no penalty to the borrower for not paying, at least for a year. I think this was in place for a year. Uh, so it's I, I'd be surprised if 22 million borrowers started paying on their debt. I mean, it could be half that. It could be a quarter of that. It could be you know shadow of you know what they're expecting. So, uh, you know, it's not great. The timing isn't great. The economy is going to is soft and getting softer and probably will be at its softest point late this year going into next. But I, I, I don't think by, by it's certainly not by itself that it's, it's that big a deal. What do you think? Yeah, I'd agree. That's been what I've been saying as well. That certainly doesn't help, right? And given some of the other pressures we've talked about, right? If indeed savings are running out, it doesn't, it doesn't certainly point at a positive picture, but on its own, it's not enough to really be the root cause of the next recession. Right, right. Uh, okay, I I, I want to also ask, and maybe before we answer the question, maybe we should play a little bit of a statistics game, which is going to feel a little weird because it's just the two of us. I don't know how that's going to go, but we might give it a shot. But I do yeah. want to ask, um, 
you know, what is the thing that people are missing? You know, what, you know, the kind of the standard you always get, you know, what keeps you up at night question. But before I come back to that, let me, let, 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 you want to play? Do you have a statistic? I got one. I have one. You have, you have one? I have one. We kind of alluded to it earlier, but uh, okay. maybe that makes it easier. But, uh. Not really, because we, we've covered a lot of ground already. <laughs> I don't know how helpful that is, but okay, fire away. All right. All right. 117. Oh, and I should say, oh. uh, wait a second. Yeah. To the listener, I'm taking it for granted, but they know what the game is. The game is we put forward a statistic. The rest of us, meaning me in this case, try to figure out and not look stupid, you know, what that statistic is. And I'm, you know, through cues and deductive reasoning and, you know, uh, uh, clues. And uh, the best statistic is one that's not so easy. I'm going to get it immediately and not so hard. I never get it. But so fire away. Uh, 117.6. Is it a economic statistic that came out this week? It did. It came out on Monday. Oh, it, it, it is an index just to give you the units. Well, I was going to say that you know, just well, to establish yeah. a little, little credibility. It's not the, um, it's not the conference board survey, uh, a leading indicator, coincident indicator. No, yeah. I didn't think so. No. By the way, on that one, yeah. uh, that's getting to be pretty weird, right? Because the leading indicators as measured by the conference board have been declining for well over a year now. Yeah. But where's that recession, my friend? It, recession is coming. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, here, here's what I want to know. And I'm, I haven't been able to chance to do it, but can you go back and look historically? Has there ever been a case where the leading indicators has fallen for so much for so long in a recession not occurred? No. No, it's got a perfect track record. Okay. At least so far. <laughs> and it, it, this started falling, I think, a well over a year ago. Yes. Has that ever happened where the recession has followed no. that? So, oh, with okay. That much so, of a, with that much of a lag? lag? I don't believe so, but I'll, I'll double check. There might be some cases where, um, yeah. I've been looking at the magnitude. We've never had a case where we fought the leading economic indicators have fallen so much and not had a recession within a six, 12 month period. But, and but just I, so I, folks know, no, the conference board puts these, uh, so-called leading indicator, coincident <laughs> indicator, lagging indicator. It's a compilation of different economic financial statistics that historically have tended to lead, be coincident with, or lag the business cycle, lag recessions. And yeah. the, it, you know, as you can imagine, the leading indicator is heavily dependent on the shape of the yield curve, the treasury yield curve. And that's been inverted, which historically has been a very good, you know, prescient predictor of recession. So that's driving a lot of the train. Also, I think it also includes University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Index, which yep. is, you know, a little saying something very different than some of the other confidence measures, including the conference, which is a weird, weird Wait, thing. Don't they use the conference board? Sentiment? Oh, I was just going to say, oh, do they use the conference? They I should probably. It'd, do it'd they? be odd if they... I don't think they do, though, now that I say it. I just said it, and I'm not sure... But that would be odd, wouldn't it? But no, they they would pick the one that is the most prescient, wouldn't they? Historically, I don't know. Can you? Oh, we wow. should find that out. I should That's check. A, wait, that would be weird. <laughs> that would be weird. Oh, it'd be really weird. We should check it out. The other thing, though, that you know, maybe a reason why the leading indicators are a little off this this time compared to previous. They're very heavy on interest rate sensitive sector activity, housing. Yep. Uh, 
manufacturing activity, right? And those two sectors have held up a lot better than anticipate, you know, than you for lots of different reasons. And so they may not be as good a leading leading indicators may not be that as good a leading indicator because of you know those those what's the idiosyncratic kind of environment that we're in. Okay, yeah. but going back to your statistic, yeah, I like how you uh, <laughs> yeah, yourself. I'm some delaying, time. delaying. Uh, is it a housing related statistic? It's not. It's not. Uh, it's from yeah. the Fed. Oh, that helps. Federal it, Reserve. Oh, industrial production. Nope. Because that's an index. It is. <laughs> it is. <laughs> Did it come from the Board of Governors? Yes, indeed. Is it a monthly statistic? It comes out weekly. Oh, no, uh, even daily. Sorry, daily. Oh, a daily statistic from the Federal Reserve Board. Is it if is it financial related? Yes. Uh, H10. Uh, H10. Does that help? No, you know what? I don't know. H10. Is it financial conditions index or something? No. Or no. no. Uh, damn, I should know this. Uh, H10 is the foreign exchange rate table. Oh, it's broad trade weighted dollar. Yes. yes. Nominal. Yes. Nominal broad trade weighted dollar. Oh gosh, there's got to be a lesson in you picking that statistic. You well, just picked kinda, that to trump me. What we kind of referred to it with the uh, did? American oh, yeah. tourists. Yeah, yeah, we did. We did. Strength. We did. So the dollar is weakening. Yeah. Right. Um, relative. It was really strong a year or so ago. Right. It is weakening now. So something to to watch. But it's still relative to where we were prior to the pandemic. Still relatively strong. So. As we think about inflation and implications of a strong dollar, right? Certainly, yep. a weaker dollar could put some uh, upward pressure on that inflation. But again, weaker—I mean, it's all relative. Yeah. I, I get it. But, I mean, it's well—it's well above its long-run average, right? I yes, think. it is. Yeah, still. but it, it's, it's still strong. It's falling pretty swiftly now. Uh, really? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm not so sure. <laughs> when you say sw- swiftly, against what exactly? Against itself, all right. <laughs> Against what other? It's a broad trade weighted, so it's got all these other basket of other currencies. What is the dollar? Well, we mentioned against? the euro appreciating. Honestly. Yeah, a little bit. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm, again, I'm not saying right. that it's you're collapsing. stretching, buddy. I'm, it's not collapsing, but it's yeah. It's weaker than... <laughs> uh, okay. It all right. Fair enough. All right. That's the fodder for a future discussion. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not so sure. Okay, I got a statistic. I don't know how fair this is. Uh, it's probably more fair than. But one. it's more fair than one you just gave me. Uh, and this goes to. I'm going to give you a hint. It goes to uh, uh, a surprise, a, a positive surprise about the economy. Uh, uh, that is. Well, I'll stop there. I can give more, but I'll I'll, I'll give it. I'll, I'll give you the statistic: one hundred ninety-four point three billion dollars. One hundred ninety-four point three billion dollars. It it is a, a economic statistic that is produced by the. Well, I'm not going to tell you, but by the government. Uh, it, it and it didn't. I don't think it came out this past week. I think it came out oh. the week before. So I I, I'm, I apologize oh. for that. Oh, yeah, but it's a really good one. And it's apropos to the conversation at hand because it is a surprise, a very meaningful surprise, Gosh, at that? least to me, and a reason for why the economy is held up better than expected. I'll give you one. I'll give you one more hint. Uh, it's 
No, maybe I shouldn't give you that one. It's produced by the Bureau of Census. That should help a lot. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's monthly. Uh, $194 billion. $194.3 billion. This is as of May, the May data. Yeah. And, you know, we were talking about it in the context of leading indicators and, you know, how the interest rate sensitive sectors are holding up better than has been the case historically. And this is a oh. reason why that's the case. The housing construction. Oh, okay. It, you got half right. It, it, you got the construction, construction. right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, not just housing, but. Uh... No, well, 194 billion is too small for all the construction. Yeah, that's right? true. This is annualized. It's annualized data. I think annualized construction put in place is uh, well over a trillion. Yeah. Which sector? Uh... Which sector? Oh, this is a good. You should know this one. Oh, no, no. Now you should know it. Yeah, what's 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 booming in the construction sector? Oh, industrial. Yeah, industrial manufacturing, manufacturing construction put in place 194.3 billion. Can you believe it? Two years ago, you go back to May of uh, 2021, it was like 75 billion. Yeah, that's 75 billion to almost 200 billion, and it's going it's going straight up. It's almost vertical. It's almost vertical. It was so cool, right? Pretty amazing. Yeah, and that goes to the you know a lot of government support the Chips Act in particular. That's the piece of legislation that was passed you know a little over a year. I think it was a little over a year ago that provides tax incentives for uh, global chip producers to you know manufacture here in the United States, and uh, it's pulling in a lot of construction, a lot of the um, new manufacturing uh, uh, construction activity. You know, fa actual fab plants are being constructed. In fact, I just saw. Uh, TMCS, that's the large Taiwanese uh, chip manufacturers uh, building a plant in Arizona. They were talking about this when I was in Southern California. They are going to be delayed in del in uh, starting that plant, uh, going back to something, the, some of the issues we were talking about earlier, because they can't find skilled Perfect. labor. Yeah. Yeah. They're in, this is so funny. So this is this comes out of one of the conversations I was having with uh, with uh, one of the banking clients this this past week because they're following it very carefully. Uh, and he was saying, uh, you know, because uh, TSMC said they're, they're probably gonna have to bring in some Taiwanese labor engineers, you know, here to help oh, really? finish okay. this thing. Yeah. He goes, I, I don't know how that's going to work at all. They, they're, they're never going to get any of those Taiwanese workers come because the closest uh, Chinese restaurant to the fab plant is seven miles away. That's what he said. I go. That's pretty precise. That's pretty. Yeah. Precise. Then, he, then he said, "Well, yeah." And the bet the the closest decent Chinese restaurant is twenty miles away. Twenty miles away. And by the way, there's no direct flights from. I think he said Phoenix to Taipei, which surprised me a little bit. But you know, but he knew he knew he knew this. I right. thought that was pretty. You know, took huh. this very seriously. So, what do you think? That was a pretty good statistic. That's a pretty good pretty. It, yeah, that was a good one. And you were That's very a good generous. One. You were generous with your hints. So, and I was generous with my hints. Yeah, generous with. Okay, let's uh, 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 go back. You know, I, you know, I've, have you noticed we've been speaking, talking with each other on this podcast for about an hour? It's and it's just a this was supposed to be, I'm not uh, even sure we need Marissa anymore. You know, oh, I'm just saying. Oh, really? Okay, that was that was rude. Oh come on! Okay, you know, <laughs> we can only do this so often. We need we need Marissa. <laughs> can bring her back, please. Um, where is she, by the way? Hawaii. Oh, good. She's for doing her. Uh, 
detailed economic research into the uh, okay. economy. Okay, good for I her. I expect a full report when she's Yeah, done. well, Hawaii is an interesting economy. That That's a topic for another day, though. Yeah. Okay, uh, let's end this conversation this way because it's always part of the conversations we have. Uh, you know, what is it that people are missing on the downside? You know, what could go wrong here? What should What should people start being focused on that they're not focused on? What do you think? You got well, to, you, you must get that question all the time. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, I'm going to go back to my upside surprise, which you don't think is an upside surprise, but that was the consumer. And I would say the consumer, consumer credit is another area. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Focused blah. on the downside. Yeah. Really? Yeah. What, what's what's bugging you there? Other than, I just, I just assuage your concerns around student loans. So what's the, what's the deal? What's, what's well, I'm not you? not concerned about student loans. I just don't think it's the. I'm not rigor. not concerned. Okay, okay. I, hate I don't those. think it's the concern, uh, or I don't think it's the trigger for a recession. But I think it adds to pressure on consumer balance sheets, as you know, labor market does slow. We, wages are going to come in, right? The Fed is going to guarantee that, um, and certainly that's going to start to put more pressure on consumers. I think this the excess savings we've been talking about have been a real boon, but those are running lower and lower every month. So I think it's going to get um, tighter here, and we're going to be right walking the tightrope. And I worry about the consumer credit delinquency default rates starting to really ramp up here, and that could cause that could have a real chilling effect from a not only a banking standpoint but even a psychological standpoint. If you start to see a lot of defaults and delinquencies, right, might lead to consumers thinking twice about taking on additional credit or continuing that spending at the levels that we've talked about. Oh, so when you say consumer credit, what, what, precisely what do you mean? You mean bank card? Bank I mean, cards? I, I, anything outside of mortgage, really. Oh, well, so, so you're throwing in student loans, auto loans, student bank loans, cards. auto loans, bank card, personal loans. Unsecured personal loans, con- right. so-called consumer finance. And- uh, so you're saying uh, clearly delinquencies are rising here pretty quickly. That's defaults. Right. Part of that is the stress that lower income households or financial stress that they're under in part because of the inflation they've blown through their excess saving. Also it goes to, we've talked about this in previous podcasts, score inflation uh, back in the particularly- 21, 22. Right. That's yep. the bad so-called vintage of loans. That's where the delinquencies are you know, really popping. Right. You're saying- that this could get meaningfully worse, e- even if we don't go into recession, could get meaningfully worse. But obviously, if we go into I, recession. Yeah, I, I see it getting worse. Certainly, it's yeah. not going to get better until right. we uh, move through these twenty, uh, these particular vintages. Right, that's going to take another year or two. Um, so expect the delinquencies to get worse, but the risk is that they get they really take off. If there is some other weakness out, if if the job market slows considerably, if you do start to see unemployment ticking up a bit further, right, that's going to put additional pressure on these markets and cause those delinquency and default rates to to rise, and that's going to cause the banks to start to pull back even more. I suspect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. I mean, the dollar amounts are, I guess, they're consequential. About a trillion in bank card debt outstanding. Uh, I think consumer finance is what. 250, 300 billion, probably. Yeah, not not that large. Yeah. Uh, Autos is significant. That's one and a half trillion. trillion. And student loans are another one and a half, one six. So you add that all up, that's that's real money. That's what you're saying. Yeah. And it's, again, it's really what the impact on the margin, 
in terms of the diminished spending uh, in an economy that might already be facing some, yeah. some headwinds. Boy, if that's the worst you can come up with, I, I'm feeling pretty good. I mean, I, I agree. I mean, it's definitely a, a soft spot and going to be some, you know some issue, but it already feels like the lenders have tightened up. Loan growth is slowing. Uh, still growing quickly, but you know, starting to slow. Uh, you pointed that out in the last That's podcast. It. Yeah, that, you were slow. pointing that out, right? Yeah. And uh, it feels like delinquency is starting to top out. Uh, you know, it's, uh, no, you don't think so? I don't know about that. Okay, interesting. Okay, okay, because it's now it it is a back to pre pandemic, right? Yeah, maybe even a little higher than pre pandemic in some of the markets. Yeah, in some of the markets. Yeah, okay. Okay, fair enough. Okay, I got two. All uh, right. One's near term. One's uh, you know a little bit longer, more longer term. Actually, I can give you three. Uh, one that's short term, intermediate term, long term. Oh. Actually, I can give you four. No, I'm like I could give you four, but that's I don't want to depress people. Near term government shutdown, right? I mean, I think there's a growing possibility that lawmakers can't come to terms uh, before yeah. the end of the fiscal year, uh, which is the end of September, pass a piece of legislation that funds the government. So we could shut down. And my sense is that we could stay set, shut down for the entire fourth quarter because the oh. real pressure, yeah, the real pressure point politically is that if they if they don't come to terms on January 1, there will be what's called sequestration, a 1% cut across all uh, discretionary spending, both defense and non-defense. And I don't think anybody wants that, both Republican and Democrat. So they'll come to terms. But that, you know, the, you know that the Republican House could want to send a message here because they're pretty strident and decide, hey, say, we're going to shut down for a full quarter. If it's a full quarter Q4, mm, you know, that oh, adds yeah. up. That adds up, particularly with the student loan thing I just mentioned. Which adds up. Uh, so you know, Q4 feels a little iffy to me at this point. Um, you know, we may get that. That could t- send us into negative GDP territory. So I worry about that. Yeah. And so, yeah, I was thinking a few weeks. You know, we brush it off as usual. But yeah, if it's no, a quarter, yeah, I think it could be that long. It could be that okay. long. Uh, here's the intermediate term uh, concern, and it goes back to the financial system. Not the banking system, because I think the banking system is on much sounder ground because of the policy response to the crisis that occurred in March. You know, the bank term funding program the Fed established to allow banks to borrow against their security holdings at par. Uh, you know, the uh, the willingness of uh, regulators, Treasury, to uh, ensure all depositors come push to shove. You know, those kinds of things. They're resolving troubled institutions very rapidly. They're not letting them fester, which is, a, you know, I think a good thing. Uh, uh, in, in the, in the, from the perspective of safety and soundness, and you know, making sure the system doesn't fall apart. It's the non-bank part of the system, the shadow system, particularly the part I know best. Uh, and I'm worried about all of it because, in part, because I don't understand it, and it's not a, it's not transparent. It's very opaque. You don't have really good data. On big chunks of the you know private credit market, for example, leveraged loan market. Uh, but I'll I'll uh, point to the non-bank mortgage industry. Yeah, that makes me a little nervous. Uh, you know, because they're under a lot of pressure because there's no, as we talked, interest rate lock, no home sales, 
therefore no mortgage origination and that's their business that's how they make their money and if there's no origination you can you know they're going to start to see some failure there uh and there's no you know these the institutions you know they're mostly intermediaries but they do have some risk and they do have some capital but it's very thin capital but here's the real kind of vulnerability they they they're funding you know they they they're non-bank they don't have deposits so they rely on warehouse credit lines from the big banks and you know capital markets for their funding and i could you you could easily see that under some scenarios drying up uh and if they can't get funding and can't can't make loans then they go out of business very rapidly and if you know they're small in the grand scheme of things so they're not systemically important but if again if you get a a, a rash of failure uh and then creditors and uh, the other bigger non-bank mortgage companies start to say hey I don't really know what's going on here. It's not as transparent as I thought. And they just kind of run for the hills and stop stop uh, pro- providing funding or equity. Then, you know, the system kind of stops, shuts down. If they if the, And these guys are a big chunk of the mortgage market now, I think, right? They're like 75% yeah. of the mortgage market, you know, in terms of origination volume. If they stop lending, then the housing market shuts down. Then those house price declines we were talking about, yeah, and we're going to get some pretty big price declines. And then you can then then of course your mind can go in lots of different directions pretty fast. So, um, you know, and I guess adding to that is how does how does the government respond to that? You know what you know what's the response? I mean, maybe the Fed could establish a facility, but that's pretty tough to do. Maybe FHFA, which is the regulator for Fannie and Freddie, you know, tells the Fannie and Freddie and to establish, you know, a source of of funding for the non-bank mortgage launch. I don't know. I, I'm, you know, yeah, it's right? uncharted, uncharted territory yeah. there. Right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you you, would you think, agree? You agree? You that's, think that, yeah, you would think that the federal home loan banks system would be. They can't, when, but they, but these guys are not. That's the irony, right? Is the origin, mortgage originators today are not part of that system, right? So, yeah, because uh, they, 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 they can't. I mean, the right. system, the way the system works, the federal loan bank system, they take securities as collateral. Exactly. These guys don't have the collateral. They, they post the collateral to get their lines of credit. So there's no, there's no yeah. way of. So the federal home loan banks isn't a source of liquidity either. So, so you would agree. So is my. Is my is that more of a concern to you than the consumer credit? Oh, I'm just. I guess that, uh, if you had no, a rank I, order, I, I guess I'm still more concerned about the consumer. You are okay. Um, yeah, just in the sense that there are because the, we know that we know those that's a problem. We know delinquencies are rising. The other yes. we don't. It's more speculative. It's more speculative, and you know you're right. There, there's concentration of in terms of originations, but they're. There are a number of them out. A number of these originators out there. So, yeah. If one goes down, there are others that could step up to fill the volume. But, but uh, I, I, I take your point regarding the the nature of a run, right? Yeah. If yeah. suddenly a large mortgage originator goes uh, gets into trouble, suddenly all the other ones become tainted. The banks don't want to lend necessarily to any of them until they figure it out. The system could really seize up for a while. Yeah. So, Okay, you want one more, and then we'll call it a podcast. Let's go for it. Go for it. Uh, AI. Oh, you know that was the one I was going to mention. If we were going to go long term, <laughs> well, I mean, because I get that now every All single the time. meeting, right? Yeah. What yeah. about AI? Okay, so uh, actually, on this trip 
I had out West, I had Dante with me. Ah. Listeners know Dante. Dante is a great labor market, great economist who comes on every jobs Friday. And, uh, at the, you know, he, I had him come because I wanted to see, I wanted him to kind of shadow me and just, you know, see how this is done, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Cause he's going to be doing this, you know, <laughs> you know, out meeting clients a lot more than he has historically. Uh, he, he talks to all kinds all the, all the time, but he hasn't done a lot of traveling. So at the last dinner we had, which was in uh, Southern California, someone of course asked about AI and I, and I made, I asked him to answer the question, <laughs> did a great job. So I'm going to yeah. turn that back to you. How, wh- how would you answer the question around AI? How, how big a concern is that? I mean, obviously the concern is it's dystopic to the labor market, but I'll turn it back to you. How, how would you answer that question? Yeah, dystopia is one, certainly one version of the uh, of the picture you can you can paint here. Um, I guess I would to answer the question directly in terms of the short term implications. I see them as very limited. Right, AI, like any technology, takes a long time. It's going to take some time to be fully integrated into the economy. Right, you have to train people up uh, on AI. Maybe maybe the learning curve for using AI technologies for certain uh, knowledge workers is, is shorter than computers in the past, but still, it's not going to be instantaneous. So there's some uh, training that needs to be conducted. People have to get, people need to figure out how to use this uh, new technology effectively uh, in their job. So I don't see this as a 2023, 2024, even 2025 uh, type of uh, risk. This is longer term, right? It's certainly going to have some structural, or has the potential for some structural changes in the economy. So I think that we could take off the table in terms of the immediate effect. There's a lot of buzz around AI right now, but just go back to the internet. It, you know, there was a lot of buzz around the internet too initially, but it took years, decades to actually um, bring that up to speed. So I, I would remove the the short term risk. Longer term, you know, the uh, the risks really depend on how this uh, AI project works itself out. I remain quite optimistic though that. AI is coming at the time when we actually need it, given all the lack of labor that we have. But right, the issue with the labor market today and into the future is going to be a real lack of workers to fill all the positions uh, that are available. And so we need these productivity enhancements to continue to grow the economy, continue to grow uh, productivity, and ultimately continue to grow wages. So I see this as a as a real benefit to the economy overall. Will there be disruptions? Certainly, but there always are disruptions in the economy with any new technology. So I don't see those as being any worse, though, with AI than with other technologies, meaning well, over time, we'll, we will adjust. This isn't going to be an immediate shock where we lay off all the uh, programmers in the country and we just go to AI. It's going to be something that gets integrated uh, with industry over time, makes people more productive. and I think you'll barely notice at the end of the day the the real uh, uh, implications in terms of layoffs on the economy more broadly because it's going to play out over a number of years. Yeah, I, I thought. How'd I do? Well, yeah, well said. Yeah, I, no, I agree. I mean, it, it, I say it with I, I I preface the the response to the question by saying I forecast lots of things, some things I'm confident in, some not so much. This one I'm not so much because. Sure. You know, this is a tough one, 
like all technologies. But if you know, if history is a guide, and we always use history as a guide, everyone does when they forecast. They they go, okay, what happened in the past? I'm going to use that as a basis for predicting the future. And you go back and you look at technologies, big technologies, and like the internet or electrification. It takes time for those technologies to diffuse out into the economy and to have big impact. And actually, it doesn't really have a big impact until new businesses form and optimize around that new technology. That existing businesses that try to gerrymander the technology into their existing business practices, that's problematic. And in fact, to your point, could be actually counterproductive, You know, at least for a time, because they're going to, oh, what do I do with this thing? How do I organize myself? How do I take advantage of it? I'm spending all these resources on it. And by the way, the initial impact could be positive, not negative, because you know companies have to have to invest in the underlying, you know, physical hardware and software and people to be able to actually do it, you know, actually implement it to, yeah. to bring it on. And so it's not this labor-saving thing. It actually may be creating demand for labor in the near term, not 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 hurting it. Yeah, good point. Yeah, so I, you know, I I, I agree with you. I think it's going to take some time to diffuse out uh, into the economy. But you know, having said that, uh, like the internet, the internet probably added, you know, in in the two thousands when it really kicked into high gear, probably added half a point, maybe a point to productivity growth. Productivity growth in that period was three percent per annum. So, and I think that you know was the internet electrification. You know, if you go back into the twenties, same deal. You know added a, could have been a half point to a point. So if you told me over the next 10, 15 years, you get a period of, you know, five, 10 years of, you know, 3% productivity growth. I, I don't know that I'd argue with you. You know, that's, that's a real possibility, but I don't think that's dystopic, you know, dystopic in the sense that you throw so many folks out of the work so fast that they can't find other jobs. And here's the other thing, these technologies, they create wealth, right? Yep. You know, and that by creating wealth, they create more demand for stuff we can't even anticipate, you know, because, you know, we can't even think about, you know, think about all the things that we're consuming now that weren't even in our mind's eye, you know, back before the internet was in full swing, right? We, you know, mobile phones, right? I mean, you know, you know, so forth and so on. So, so I, I'm, you know, I, I, I I'm, I think we'll be able to digest it, but obviously it's a risk, you know, so it's a, you know, potential, you know, downside risk going forward. Keep, you know, certainly I don't know if it keeps me up at night, but it's something I'm thinking about, you know, more, more deeply as we, we move forward here. Okay. We covered Are a lot of ground. AI? What's that? Are you using AI? At all? I, I had, I had, yeah, I have been yeah. using it, uh, kind of like a glorified Google, you know, yeah. Yeah. you know, uh, take it with a grain of salt though. Uh, and it's not, not particularly useful, you know, for, like I thought, oh, I could use this for helping me understand what's happening now in different economies. You can't, yeah. right? Because I think it's limited at this point. Chat GPTs to 2021, right? So I, so I go, I go to Chat GPT. How's the uh, New York economy doing? Uh, you know, and it says, well, as an AI, I don't yeah, have access. To- <laughs> I don't have access to the data past 2021. I can't really answer the question. And I, then I, you know, stupidly say. Certainly, hindsight stupid. Quick hindsight stupid. Well, how's the economy going to do in the future? You idiot! <laughs> you moron! <laughs> I just told you, I can't go beyond twenty twenty one. Come on, wake up over there, human. You know that kind of thing. So, yeah, I felt a little 
diminished, you know, after that, but you know, uh, but yeah, I, I, are you using it? I, it's, it's great for coming up with uh, titles. Oh, I think Marissa uses it for the statistics game to be frank. Yeah. She well, how so if, if she can't get the latest data in there. Oh yeah. Good point. You <laughs> idiot. You moron. <laughs> uh, it's really good at summarizing things. You big dummy. Yeah. All right. Okay. Very good. I, 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 I was thinking about badgering you about your recession call, but uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to wait for the right moment for that. I felt it. That's, that's <laughs> your it was coming. It was coming. I'm not going to do it because we're, we're wrong right. in the tooth here. And All this right. is a Saturday morning. I actually more script to be written, my friend. More script to write. Yeah. Who's, who's, whose line is that? My friend. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway. All right. We're going to call this a podcast. Any, unless you got anything else you want to say. No, I think the listeners have had enough. So. They've had enough. All right, dear listener, you've had enough. It was very good chatting with you. And I think next week, next week, we, we, do we have a guest? I think we do. Uh, yeah. And Marissa will be back, uh, put us, you know, back on, uh, you know, put, put us back on the straight and narrow. Okay. With that, we're going to call it a podcast. Take care, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>